we need to take a very distinct look at that. It doesn't just mean that we get life-threatening diseases or particularly it doesn't mean that we have been thinking wrongly and that's why we get sick. doesn't mean that at all. The Buddha also got sick and died. And it's hard, hard to imagine that he was thinking wrongly. And any number of examples we can look at even in our in this century Ramana Maharshi whom I mentioned earlier uh, as an enlightened sage in southern India died of cancer and so did the Kamapa and so did Ramakrishna so his names are known to you um, the body is one thing and that is not only what is his concerns this is means also unease it's a very clear word in English and physical unease it can be as healthy and as young as you like physical unease all you have to do is sit three times for three quarter hour and you know all about it it's very simple the body has its own life and that is quite distinct and not only that but it's a material thing just like a house and houses deteriorate and eventually fall to pieces it's a matter of time oceans deteriorate and disappear and today we've got valleys and mountains that might have been oceans stars deteriorate all we see is the light which probably emanated from them like 30,000 light years ago and they're long gone why shouldn't we deteriorate there's no reason for that at all it doesn't have any logical explanation that's the way it is but the way it is we need to come to terms with it in a way which makes it a natural passage just as it is it is a natural passage and most people in the world are very much set against this natural passage of decay, disease and death they like to find ways and means which counteract all that which is not to say that we shouldn't take medicines when we're sick the Buddha himself advocated that and one of the most favored medicines in his day was urine and is still being used in many of the forest monasteries in the uh, Buddhist countries <coughs> it's probably not as quickly effective as antibiotics but it's supposed to have antibiotics in it so 
there's no saying about this that we don't take medicine when the body is sick but we need to come to terms with the fact that this is the way it is and not to expect otherwise and whether we live 30, 20, 40, 100, 150 years what's the difference? it's all a passing show and if you can think for a moment would you actually like to live 500 or a thousand years? I mean the thought alone is already gruesome never mind if it were to happen there are stories about that sort of fairy tales where this was possible for someone and uh, the results were dreadful for that person we live in a completely changing aspect from moment to moment not only physical of course mental too and this change is very much to be accepted but also it has and connotation of ease about it because just imagine that you were sitting in meditation your body is aching and your mind is totally unhappy about the lack of concentration and nothing would change I mean, it's not only dismal it's tragic but of course not only that changes everything changes and because everything changes constantly there is a certain outgoingness in us where we fail to see what's going on inside because there's so many changes going on the weather the seasons the sun the stars the moon the rain our thoughts, our feelings, everything is constantly changing. So there is so much that we take in that we forget to look in. And this is what we do in contemplation. We try to look in. I like you to think of meditation as a bridge a bridge from the worldly to the transcendental the worldly level is a level of purification and we have done twice already the contemplation of the, on the purification of the emotions that's a worldly level that's where when we are able to do this we have a far easier life everything is far smoother it's the oil in the machinery but it's a worldly level now meditation itself is also not super mundane it's a bridge between the worldly and the transcendental it enables the mind 
to see different levels or experience different levels of consciousness. And the transcendental, supermundane level is the level of insight. Now, when we do the contemplation on decay, disease and death, and there are two more, one is karma, we can use the worldly level, and we should use that, because obviously this body that we have, which is decaying every moment and gets unease and dis-ease and will die, is on the worldly level. But we can also see this on a more subtle level, namely, whatever is born must die. And that was the final solution that the Buddha found. The final solution, which is called Nibbana, and which has embedded in it the experience of dissolving into the matrix of existence where there is no separation and where there is no rebirth necessary. And when there is no rebirth, there can be no re-death. That we're all going to die this time around, I think we can take that for granted. I don't think we need to uh, discuss it. But we have possibilities. And the first one of those possibilities to, for acceptance and ease of mind is to recognize the fact that there's nothing threatening in death. It's part of life. Now there's another way of looking at death and many other ways. I'll just mention another one for the contemplation purpose. Be have, or can only have any effect each moment, this moment. So every, any moment that we use for recognizing ourselves in a more distinct way and not shying away from the things which are so obviously true and not sticking our heads in the sand because we don't want to know about them but seeing them for what they are, a passage, first from birth to death, and then death itself. The difficulty that everybody experiences with death is the fact that one thinks, me, I, am going to be annihilated. I'm going to be finished. Well, there we need to have a bit of an insight into the fact that there was nobody there to start out with. And nobody can be annihilated. We're just having a passage. We're a guest performer. And on the worldly level, we try to perform in a pure and um, purified way. And then realize that any guest performance has got to finish. Nobody can be a guest forever. <laughs>
people consider death a tragedy. Actually, it's the other way around. It's release. And if it's done the right way, one should never extend one's condolences. If death has been usefully applied, one should congratulate the person who has done so. There's nothing threatening about it. There's no threat involved in dying to one's thoughts and feelings and even the body functions moment to moment. There's no threat involved in having a day finish, falling asleep, which is also momentary death. Nobody feels very threatened by that. In fact, most people don't feel threatened by it at all. And yet, the whole day from morning to night is just in a microcosm the whole life. That's all it is. And as we can see that way, we will probably be able to live far less anxiously. Because our fears are all connected with not being here. They're not constantly having death fears. Some people never think about death. But our fears are also concerned with not measuring up, not gaining our goals, not being appreciated. These are fears, these are anxieties. They, don't, they might not um, show themselves as being very much afraid, but they're certainly anxieties. And all of that is exactly the same fear of not being that certain person that we think we are. So, the, that's why in practically every spiritual discipline, death is a very important contemplation subject. And in the order of St. Benedict, in whose monastery we are finding ourselves at this moment, it's one of the rules. It's got many rules. I don't know if it's got quite as many as the Buddha, but it's got plenty. Um, to look at one's own death every day. And if you've been to the church, there are some peculiar, which is putting it mildly, peculiar-looking skeletons in glass cases. They're actually from the Roman times. The Christian martyrs and the Vatican give them to this monastery. They're all decked out in jewels and uh, um, some very um, decorative uh, um, headdresses and things like that. Well, they are there to remind those who really practice that nothing can be important enough to get fearful, worried, or angry, or resistant about. We're only here as a guest. And as we are here as a guest 
performer, we should of course not only try to do the best performance we can, which most people do try, but uh, they have an idea what this performance should be like. They've written the script themselves, and uh, they have also made up a certain idea what this script is supposed to accomplish. And since we've got many, many guest performers on earth at the same time, they clash because they all want to be, of course, the main actor or main actress. What else? Nobody wants a supporting role. (laughs) And yet, we have a stage which is around us, and we all think, of course, we are in the middle of the stage, and the more in the middle we get, the better we feel. And then all the other people are just having these supporting roles. And, uh, <laughs> and if they don't support the main actor, that's tragic. It's uh, a matter for enmity. Well, naturally, that's the way we live. Not quite successfully, but that's how it happens all the time. Now, some people are more able to step back into the background a little. Some of them quite willingly when it becomes a, um, an escape mechanism, which also doesn't work. Some step back because they actually know it's not quite as important to be in the middle. And some do it because it's their tendency to do it, which is also all right. But when it's an escape mechanism, it doesn't work either. Because what are we escaping from? There's no way to escape. We're born, and we're going to die. And on the way there, we have opportunities. Opportunities for spiritual growth, opportunities for deep perspectives, for widening horizons, but we've got to let go of fear. Only if we let go of fear is the mind clear and open enough to have totally new thought and understanding processes enter. As long as it's beset by fear, and anyone who is um, faced with the idea that death is an annihilation of self has fear of it. So as long as we have any fear at all, then the mind doesn't have enough spaciousness in it to accept the new. So what this contemplation also aims for is to reduce our fears, to see all these natural happenings in their true perspective so that we can actually live each moment without trying to think of how many more we've got. Actually, we haven't got any anymore because we can, these are boundaries which we have made ourselves. All this business with clocks and days and calendars, these are all boundaries we have made. And they are 
on a worthy level, utilitarian. We need them, otherwise we don't know what time to go somewhere. So it's very important to have that. But they don't have any reality. The only reality which is possible to experience is to live in the moment. And if we do that, we will experience eternity because there's no boundary to the moment. One moment and then there's another moment. And if we live in each one, then we haven't made a division between what was, what will be, and what possibly is. That division are the boundaries, man-made boundaries. And they are always creating fear because we know very well subconsciously most likely or even consciously that we have made up all these things ourselves we've made up the future it's not true we're making it up so we're afraid it won't work out that way and most likely it won't because the person who's making the future up who's having all these ideas about it is not going to be the same one that's going to experience the future so it's uh, highly likely that whatever we make up will never happen, whether it's on the positive or negative side. But living in this moment now, that's eternal. <coughs> and it can have no boundaries because it encompasses the whole experience of being here now. Now we try to learn that meditation. And I will talk about it more in the context of mindfulness. And maybe that will be helpful. But the main thing is to practice. There's no substitute for practice. We can think and think and think and think, and we can disagree or we can agree, but it's no substitute. It's got to be done. When we do it, we call that biting into the mango. We know what it tastes like. And if we want to really experience a totally different reality from the one that is constantly being offered to us through our own mind and through the minds of all the people that we contact and experience a reality which has ease and um, a flow in it, we've got to learn Letting go of fear, fear for self, and that's our main fear, fear for ourselves. And sometimes people think, no, it's all right for me to die, just so my children don't die. Well, if it's all right for me to die, then it's all right for everyone to die. That it's a basic fear. So we are, that's one thing that we can work at. And the other one is to seeing the moment, how it dies. And we don't have to think of all the things that will come or not come. This is it. Living in the ease of the moment-to-moment experience makes it possible not to be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. We're just 
here now. And that is actually a wonderful and most heartening understanding that we can have if we experience it. We're going to do the contemplation in the same way we've done the other one. I will say the sentence and you will repeat it after me and then I will say something about it to help with the contemplation. will put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. And please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. One should now investigate and inquire whether one is actually conscious of that or never gives it a thought or whether one is conscious of it and rejects it and tries to stem the tide with all possible means because one considers decay an unfortunate mistake of nature. We can also look to see whether we actually be able to find the decay in the body. Have things changed? Are they different? Is there something that is no longer quite the way it was? It's very important to recognize whether we have, having recognized the decay, whether we have a resistance to it. Any resistance hardens the heart. It doesn't matter what we resist. And the heart needs to be totally malleable, flexible, soft and open to meditate properly. And also in order to be happy. So are we having any resistance?
I am of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. There we can investigate whether we've had any kind of bodily illness or any kind of physical unease, no matter how slight or how grave. Toothache, headache, tummy ache, sprained ankle, measles, whatever it may be, colds, and then have a look. Did I want those diseases? Obviously not. What does that tell me about the ownership of this body? Am I truly in charge? Or does the body have its own functions? Obviously we react to it with the mind. But am I really owner? And is that really me? And if so, why does a body do things I heartily disapprove of?
I'm of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. There's hardly any question about that. But one of the things we need to investigate. Would I be ready to die now? And if not, why not? And then investigate whether there is a certain underlying fear that I may not be able to prevent death. What am I afraid of? Why is there fear? Why don't I accept death as naturally as we accept birth? All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. This we need to investigate from our own personal experience. Whether the people, the situations, the feelings, the experiences that we have found delightful, which were dear to us, whether they have changed or possibly even vanished. 
and then look at that which is dear and delightful to us now can we accept the fact that that too will change and vanish that includes our self but all the things that we hang on to are we willing to let go of the clinging I am the owner of my karma. Here we can investigate whether we are taking full responsibility for everything that happens to us or whether we are looking for outside causes. Karma is the cause and effect teaching which means that anything that we experience has been caused by previous intention although we may not be able to connect the two so what it needs here is an investigation whether we feel totally responsible for our own situation, for the happenings in our life.
I am heir to my karma. Here we can investigate whether we are aware that we inherit the infects. So if we want a valuable inheritance, we have to manufacture it ourselves. I am related to my karma. This is the closest relationship that we will ever have. It's as near to us as our own skin. And it's the one relationship that we are forced to come to terms with. We have no choices. I live supported by my karma. This means that whatever karma we have made is our life support. And we can look at it to see that we really have no other choices than be determined to make good karma now. Our support system on every level, physical, mental, emotional, is a karmic resultant. That is an affirmation for this particular moment. This is the first moment of the rest of our lives. What are my intentions? And if I 
take karma and its resultants into consideration. What are my intentions? I already mentioned that these are called the five daily recollections and from that you can already assume that they're important important for everyday contemplation and while you're here in the course you have lots of time to do that you can do it in your individual meditation time you can don't have to sit here in order to do it. You can sit anywhere to contemplate. You can stand under a tree and contemplate. Just so you keep your mind on the subject. And if there is a resistance in the mind to think of one's own death, decay or disease, you can be assured that it is even more important that one does it. That resistance shows that one really doesn't want anything to do with it. And yet, these are laws of nature. And we have this very strange habit, human beings have that strange habit, of trying to go beyond or against the laws of nature. And nothing good comes from it. We know very well what happens when we do that in nature around us. So nothing good comes of it, going against the laws of nature in one's mind, against that which is absolutely certain. Anybody who's ever been alive and is not alive now is dead. There are no two ways about it. <laughs> and we're all on our way to the cemetery. There's no other passage. But in that passage, we have many opportunities. And the very first opportunity we have is the acceptance of the fact that we have no idea how long we're going to be here. It's very rare that a person knows. And we have no idea how long our loved ones will be here. Now, fortunately, in the West, we started about 20 years ago actually using death as a topic. Until then, it was taboo. 
The Buddha talked about it two and a half thousand years ago and said daily. Saint Benedict did it in the Middle Ages. But we didn't want to talk about it. We didn't want to know about it. It was something that wanted to even keep a secret from the members of the family. And of course, trying to keep it a secret from the one who was dying. But it's quite certain that when one is dying, one knows. Whether anybody tells one or not, it's totally immaterial. As a certain change, and that change is known. So one doesn't have to tell anybody, really. But it's absurd to try to keep it a secret. And it's equally absurd to keep it a secret from oneself while one is alive. Why keep anything a secret which is absolutely certain, which cannot be escaped, and which is no threat and no tragedy? It's just the passage of a living being. All living beings die. And that includes nature around us. I already mentioned oceans and stars and uh, everything that we can think of. Mountains even. It's a matter of time. One thing we can do at this point in time to make that passage easier for us is not to do anything that we would regret later. To be very careful. Because if one does something on the spur of the moment, impulsively, instinctively, one may very well regret it. And one may still regret it on one's deathbed. And then dying is difficult. Regrets are resistances. Their negativities. So that's one thing we can do, which means making good karma. Having the intention. The Buddha said, karma, O monks, I declare, is intention. Having the intention and trying to live by the intention and possibly improve the intention and improve what one is doing so that there is a certain feeling of contentment about one's passage through life. Contentment is absolutely essential for meditation and it also produces self-assurance. Without self-assurance, life is difficult, spiritual path is difficult, everything is difficult. So that's one thing we can look at, the intention. Now, how do we make good karma? How do we do nothing that we would ever regret? Making good karma has many possibilities. And on one level, it is being helpful, being loving, giving oneself, not wanting to take, but giving. And if we do that, we will also see that there is contentment coming from that. We all have love to give. We can 
always learn to be helpful and to think of others. That doesn't mean that we think of others to the exclusion of caring and looking after ourselves. As you know, we start the loving-kindness meditation with having love for ourselves. What we don't feel for ourselves, we don't feel for anybody. No matter what we think we feel, we very often think we feel something. The more acceptance and lovingness is extended towards oneself, which does not mean indulgence, which is the total opposite to that, the easier it is to love others. So that's one thing that we can determine to do. And if we have that kind of determination as a thread running through our lives, we have very often no regrets whatsoever. However, should we come to later years in life and feel we have missed this, that or the other, then there is total resistance to the fact that death is imminent. Obviously, we think that death is imminent when people are old or older, but that's also not true. Death is always imminent. We have no idea what's happening. It's very good that we can't look into the future. We'd probably be even more fearful than we are already. But because we don't know doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prepared. We should prepare while we're alive. To start preparing on our deathbed is much too late. First of all, our physical capacities are no longer the same, and therefore we are reacting most likely with the mind to the physical difficulties and can therefore not do a clear-cut practice. Now, when we're still all right, or as all right as we'll ever be physically, That's the time. That's the time to come to terms with one's own death. To know it for what it is. The natural outcome of being alive. And nothing to be afraid of. There are a number of books that are very interesting to read. And they depict stories are very, uh, some of them, uh, two of them I've read, they have the stories of people who had near-death experience in hospital and were brought to life again with some uh, modern technique. And they tell about their experience. And it can be taken for granted that they actually had that experience. Because what it entails is also that after they came back to life, first they were angry at the doctor. That was the first thing, that he brought them back to life because they were having a wonderful time, actually. And then when they made up their mind it was all right to be back there, they also changed their lifestyle. And they became far more concerned with the well-being of others. And the experiences that are in those books and uh, written by a doctor, the one I remember most vividly is by Dr. Moody, 
are most certainly personal experiences. They are very much akin to our culture and society because what people see not with the physical eye but what they see as inner visions is very much dependent upon the culture and society that we come from that's why I'll just briefly mention the Tibetan book of the dead has as visions those things which belong to the Tibetan culture and society. People are used to those um, wrathful deities that they can see as visions. I've never seen a wrathful deity. I don't know what a wrathful deity is actually all about. So we come from cultures which have a different setup and therefore our visions that we have are also different. And those um, stories or those um, personal experiences show quite clearly that the passage from life to death is gentle and it is um, elevating and it is non-threatening and it is when you accept it there is no fight it is something that one could even compare to a very very concentrated meditative state in the formless absorptions they didn't say that I'm saying that but from what was written one could actually make that kind of conclusion so there is absolutely nothing to be afraid of what we are afraid of is unfortunately the strongest craving we have as I told you the Buddha made this enlightenment statement of the four noble truths the first noble truth that there is dukkha in all existence second noble truth that that dukkha has only one cause and that's craving and that there are three kinds of cravings and they are the craving to be the craving not to be and the craving for sensual gratification the strongest is the craving to be sometimes when everything goes wrong and uh, one is very uh, depressed then the craving not to be comes into play but it's nothing but the other side of the same coin it's just exactly the same thing as the craving to be now this is our strongest and it produces dukkha why does it produce dukkha? because we know very well that this craving can never be realized one of these days we're not going to be so we're actually craving something which is totally impossible and we make ourselves rather unhappy with craving something which we can never accomplish wouldn't it stand to reason to let go of that craving yes it would naturally but it's not as easily done as said 
because in order to do it, one has to see oneself in a different light. It's not enough to see oneself as a guest performer. That's a beginning. It's not enough to realize that our thoughts and feelings are constantly changing and that there's no security in them. It's a good start. It's not enough to realize in meditation that our thoughts are very often unbelievable and we therefore don't really have to follow them. It's a good beginning. It sort of shakes the foundation of the ego belief a little. But in order to could totally get rid of the craving to be, one has to get rid of the illusion who we are. And this is the pathway where everything leads to to get rid of this illusion. When we get rid of that illusion, there are any number of misconceptions about what happens after one gets rid of that illusion. One of the misconceptions is one isn't going to do anything. One's totally inactive. Why one thinks that way is not quite clear because getting rid of an illusion doesn't mean the same as inactivity. The other um, misconception is that should we get rid of the illusion of self that we're not going to enjoy anything. It's just the other way around. One enjoys everything far more. The uh, other illusion is that when one gets rid of this self-belief um, that one is then uh, like more like a vegetable than a person. <laughs> well, it's a total misconception. None of that is true. These are all myths that the mind makes up. And why does it make it up? Because the ego says, I don't want to go away. I've lived here many lifetimes. I'm going to stay here. And so the ego ma makes this very strong stand. And as it makes a strong stand, the mind goes along with it and says, sure, sure, that's quite right. It must be very bad to get rid of that illusion. Even though one has an underlying doubt because the Buddha talked about it all the time. And not only the Buddha, all Christian mystics talked about it. All Sufi mystics talked about it, wrote about it, showed some way of using one's mind to get rid of this illusion. So we have a sniggling doubt in the back of our minds that maybe there's something to it, but the ego is much stronger. So if we realize that, that this craving to be is detrimental to our happiness, it's a first step in letting go of it. That doesn't mean by any means that if we let go of it a bit that we have to change our lifestyle or stop doing what we're doing. It means we're doing it differently. It looks outwardly exactly the same. Nobody gets a halo. They're not available. So everything looks the same outwardly. 
but inwardly there is more of this doing for doing's sake but not for results sake and that's one loss of anxiety and also it's a loss of the feeling of being overstressed because it's only the result thinking which produces stress it's not the doing so then having had at least that much of a shaking of the foundation of this um, craving that we have we can look further and as we look further obviously we will have a look at our own death and if the mind says it's quite alright for me to die I don't have to look at that you can be sure that you have to look again human nature is opposed to death because we have as our strongest craving the craving to be and not only that in our culture many people have been imbued with the fear of death because they haven't behaved just the way they should so things are going to go wrong for them it's also a very strong um, unpleasantness it's not only that they're afraid to die because people are, human beings are afraid to die no it's because we've been taught that too so we have that in addition not in every culture Bavaria is strong in that it's a very strong point but none of that has any basis in fact if we now live at this time without being afraid to die we can live in liberty one thing that that is lost immediately is trying to be appreciated because that's another ego support and it's very unpleasant sometimes some people have more luck with it than others they get more appreciated but most of the time we need to be outwardly directed in order to be appreciated that doesn't mean that we start being unpleasant to other people on the contrary but what we can do is we can be totally truthful truthful to ourselves and others we don't have to take their responses into consideration if they respond in the same way that we try to um, contact them fine if not you can try again so if we have no fear of death we also have no fear of not being appreciated if we have no fear of death we have no fear for our loved ones that's a big thing because that's the strongest clinging clinging is the to the detriment of becoming free and freedom is what the Buddha taught mental emotional freedom there are many words that we can make about it but that's its essential nature Nibbana means literally translated non-burning but it's freedom 
freedom from fear. It doesn't matter what age one has at this time. Anybody can die at any age. If one is older, naturally, it's even more important. The transition from this life to death entails, of course, as long as one isn't enlightened, rebirth. But we have to remember that the person that we know now with this name, these looks, these abilities, these possessions, is never going to be reborn again. Never. That's it. It's a one-time guest performance. And that's why we need to practice now and not later. The only thing that gets reborn are karmic resultants. That's all. And we can't even say that they're reborn. It's difficult to use the proper words. We can only say that karmic resultants connect. That's it. And so we appear here, when we get born, with karmic resultants. But that doesn't mean that we're stuck to them. That people do believe that. They believe, oh yes, it's my karma, but I can't do anything about it. That's a total misconception. That would be akin to fate. And the Buddha said, no, no, karma is not fate. We have free choice to a certain extent in every moment. The Buddha uh, voiced it like this. He said, there are four kinds of people. One lot gets born in the dark and goes to the dark. Another kind gets born in the dark and goes to the light. Another kind gets born in the light and goes to the dark. Another kind goes, gets born in the light and goes to the light. Light and dark depicting good and bad circumstances. So we have opportunities, which is our new karma making. We do bring with us the tendencies and particularly the tendency which is the craving to be because otherwise we wouldn't get born that's the reason for being born the craving to be and if we want to experience this matter of rebirth which people so often say oh well I don't believe that Buddha just said that or how can I prove it it's uh, I've got to be dead first and then I don't know anything all these um, understandable objections we use one day at a time we get reborn in the morning the day is young and we are quite uh, strong after our rest we bring with us the karmic resultants of yesterday. There's no doubt about that. 
if we had a big fight the day before, that will still linger in the mind. If we had a lot of loving relationships the day before, that will affect the mind. And then, as the day goes on, we make good karma or bad karma. And this karma making starts in the mind. Our thoughts. Their thoughts are the instigators of whatever happens. And that's why we need to watch our thoughts most carefully. That's what we learn in meditation to label that's what we do in everyday life we label we've got to know what we're thinking and if the thought process is unwholesome we are making bad karma if it's wholesome we're making good karma and anyone can teach him or herself to make good karma Obviously, there are situations where we are impulsively overrun by resistances and rejections. And if they come to the point where another person is affected, we should as quickly as possible apologize. Simply for the relief of regret within oneself. If there's any person that we have a long-standing disagreement with or rejection for, we should hasten to remedy that as quickly as possible. First of all, we don't know when that person will die. Secondly, we don't know when we will die. And thirdly, the quicker we remedy the negativity, the less of a rut will it produce in our minds. The longer we keep it, the deeper it will go into the mind. The mind will be permeated by it. It's a very unfortunate thing that people don't realize that if they dislike anyone, dislike is in the mind. And it affects the mind and the heart. It can't be otherwise. We cannot make compartments in our mind and our heart. There are the compartments for the people we like, and here are some compartments for the people we don't like, and we can keep them all separate. It just can't be done. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't have any drawers for the mind where we can do this. So the whole thing goes on in heart and mind. So the quicker we get rid of it, the better. And particularly if we realize that a person that we have had a great difficulty with and have not ironed that out in this life will definitely reappear for that next person that is getting reborn and they're going to be exactly the same difficulties. Both will have different names. They'll look different. They'll live somewhere different, but they're going to have exactly the same difficulties because those are the karmic resultants. Karma is cause and effect. As you sow, you will reap. 
it's to be found in all spiritual disciplines. You can't put carrot seeds in the ground and expect tomatoes. There's just no way you can do that. Nobody does. But with karma, people do. They think they can think anything and nobody will know about it. So everything be all right. It's a total fallacy. First of all, our thoughts are visible and tangible and they affect us ourselves. And that's why with our karma, if we have the intention, our watching of the thought and the substituting the unwholesome with the wholesome is the most important first step. Karma making goes on as long as we have this feeling that there's somebody within us who's called me. Now, if you wake up in the morning and you get out of bed, you don't have to tell yourself who you are. You know it's you. I mean, nobody has to go around saying to himself, my name is and uh, I am such and such. Uh, it's totally unnecessary. We know exactly who we are when we get out of bed. So we have the inner feeling of self. As long as that inner feeling of self exists, so long we make karma. There's somebody there that's doing these things. I am meditating or I am not meditating. And that is a way where which is quite all right and which is um, on the level of the worldly endeavor, where we can make the connection by making good karma to transcendence. Then good karma is practically always connected to reducing egocentricity. Practically always connected to that. And the more we reduce egocentricity, the more we shake that illusion. Some people do it naturally. They've brought that tendency with them. Some people learn it and understand that this is important. And some people keep forgetting about it. Anybody, the way they can. But that is practically always connected with making good karma. Now, as the day goes on, we're watching our thoughts and we're trying not to make any bad karma with our thoughts, or obviously not with the speech and with the action either. Then, get more tired, get older, day gets older, and the day is finished and we go to bed and die a small death. We don't know where we are. Next morning, we're there again and we bring with us what we have done in the past. There you have a personal experience of day-to-day rebirth. In essence, we are reborn every second. And as I said, get out old photo albums and stand in front of the mirror and you will know what is meant by that we get reborn every second. 
Now, if you take that to heart, getting reborn every second and living that second, if that actually sinks in as a personal experience, then there can be no fear of death. Because the next second from life into death is nothing but the dissolution or the separation of mind from body and eventually the dissolution of the body that's all it is there is a next moment the next moment is only not there for fully enlightened one but otherwise there is the next moment so fear of death is so widespread and so ingrained because we think this is it just being here but if you think for a moment if that was all there was is it really worth it? it's beset with difficulties isn't it? there's always something being afraid of this or that wanting something new getting here or there having unease body or mind is it really worth it? so the mind goes to the future it's going to be better in the future. Really? If one has more past, one knows that too isn't true. But if we let go of this idea that there's something behind the next second, but be in it, then there's nothing to fear. We flow with that stream that starts at birth and goes on after death we flow with it if we don't live in this very moment it's like damming the stream we put boulders in it because we don't want it to flow like that and what do we get when we make a dam we get turbulence that's what people have they have inner turbulence because things are not totally satisfactory if they really begin to look. So living our life at least in one day from morning to night is already a big help in not being afraid of what comes after. Why should we worry about what comes after? There's nothing after. It's always now. And it is just as a gentle transition as we go to bed at night and wake up in the morning. It's the same transition. It's being asleep and being awake is different. So that's the same thing. And if we can learn through meditation to actually have the attention one-pointedly on this one moment we will experience no fear and no fear is liberating 
There's nothing that can be more liberating. Now, people have fear for the lives of their loved ones. They have fear of their old age, fear of diseases, fear of death, naturally. They have a fear of political upheavals, of the atomic bomb, of uh, any number of things. I can't think of all of them, but uh, I'm sure you can, uh, you know, help to think of all of them. So, um, what for? This is the moment, and it's a gentle stream which keeps on flowing. And as long as we flow with it, and do not try to turn the tide, and do not try to stem that flow, but be totally contented to be in it, as long as we do that, then there's nothing at all to fear. People of all ages have lived and died. All you have to do is look at a history book. And they have had the same fears and worries and upsets that we have. But it's not necessary. There have always been some that have seen it differently. And as they see it differently, they can live differently inside of themselves, not outside inside what they do outside is very often according to circumstance whatever their circumstances are that's what happens outside but within that acceptance of the gentle flow which keeps going of course gentles heart and mind and as it becomes gentler it can meditate better and as we can meditate better we have a much stronger transition from the worldly to the supermundane or the transcendental. The transcendental, which is then the real experience and realization that what we see as separate identities, what we see as self what we see as being or having boundaries like each body having a boundary being finished here and then another body and another and another that it's all optical illusion it's not the way it really is transcending that what is an optical illusion and what is, of course, a mind state cannot be done without meditation. But we must remember that the meditation is only the bridge between the two. No fear is one of the helpmates, support systems, or, let me say, Less fear. Less fear is already a necessary ingredient in order to meditate. Because if there's a great deal of fearfulness, and it's always the same, huh? fear of annihilation, then the mind is not willing to let go of the thinking and to fall into 
the states of inner being where the ego or the me has much less of a support system where we experience the levels of consciousness on a totally different in a different area so less fear is essential to concentrate to make meditation possible the more fear the less meditation when we come to the point where the concentration is actually beginning when we experience fear at that moment and I've already said that and I'll repeat it investigate what am I possibly afraid of what can happen and if you investigate truly you will see nothing can happen nothing at all what's the worst thing people can be afraid of death so it will happen anyway whether we are afraid of it or not so why not let go of fear it all makes sense but it's got to be done and that's why we use the contemplation in order to get in there and see see it for what it is within I like to suggest once more that every day you use some time 